Hi, my name is Trevor O'Keefe, and I'm the pastor at Olive Branch Christian Fellowship. We're a Jesus-loving Bible church who are committed to studying the words of Jesus, walking in the ways of Jesus, and partnering in the mission of Jesus. Thanks for joining us on that journey today. Jesus, we pray for our partners abroad, even thinking of this church in Ukraine, bless and use them, protect these people as they serve their countrymen. And Jesus, we're asking that you, the king of the world, would intervene. Bring an end to empires that are built in corruption. Jesus, put a stop to things like this. Jesus, our hearts long when we see the world's brokenness for the day when we are with you, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. Jesus, we long to be with you. And today we pray that you would visit with us as we wait for that day. In Jesus' name, amen. Mark 14, the Archibalds going to read this morning's passage to you. From Mark 14, they'll begin in verse 12. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and prepare that you may eat the Passover? And he sent out two of his disciples and said to them, go to the city and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. Wherever he goes in, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, we, where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large upper room, furnished and prepared. There, make ready for us. So his disciples went out and came into the city and found it just as he had said to them, and they prepared the Passover. In the evening he came with the twelve. Now as they sat and ate, Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you who eats with me, will betray me. And they began to be sorrowful, sorrowful and say to him one by one, Is it I? And another said, Is it I? He answered and said to them, It is one of the twelve who dips with me in the dish. The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him, but woe to the man who, by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had never been born. Why don't you keep reading verse 22. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed and broke it, gave it to them and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out onto the Mount of Olives. <clears throat> in the 1970s, just south of the province of Cairo, there was an Egyptian treasure hunter who discovered an untouched cave that housed, it hid inside this ivory box. And inside that ivory box were a whole bunch of parchments. And he realized it was quite the find. They looked very old. And so he went to an antiquities dealer and quickly flipped them for some cash. That antiquities dealer realized that they were far more valuable than the young man who was the treasure hunter had first realized. And he marked the price then at $3 million if he wanted to purchase these ancient documents. Well, because of his high price, they sat untouched for an awful long time. So then he finally changed his game plan and ended up in 1984 boarding a plane and illegally smuggling those documents into the good old U.S. of A. He landed in New York City and did what you do with ancient documents such as these. He put them in a safe deposit box in Long Island where they sat for over a decade untouched 
And because of the change in humidity from Egypt to New York City, they began to decay, as some of you are already shaking your heads, because you realize it would do incredible damage to these documents that are now fragmented and decaying rapidly. Until finally he found another antiquities dealer here in the U.S. who was interested in the documents and ended up purchasing them. They'd make their way all the way to the National Geographic Society, who would instantly turn them over to someone who is well-versed and skilled in the preservation of these ancient documents. What they found was that the documents were written in an ancient Egyptian dialect that was used during the Roman era. It was used specifically in the Roman provinces of Egypt. The documents were dated to somewhere around the 3rd or 4th century AD. 66 pages about the size of a typical piece of printer paper, although now it looked more like Swiss cheese than a piece of paper because of all the holes, because of the fragmenting that happened, housed four different documents inside. One of them you may have heard of. It's referred to as the Gospel According to Judas. An early church father named Irenaeus had cited and criticized a minority group of people that were alive in the early church in the year 180 AD, he wrote saying that there's this group of people who are beginning to start a rumor that they have some inside information as to the real plot line of the betrayal of Jesus and that they are trying to vindicate Judas himself. And he marks it, he criticizes it and marks it as a false gospel and something that should not be trusted. And these documents seem to be the first time modernized get a look into what that ancient heresy was that existed all the way back just three and four generations after the time of Jesus. People emerging on the scene saying, we've got inside information. Well, these written references, they allege conversations that Jesus had with his disciples and specifically Jesus talking to Judas of all things about cosmology, about the origins of the universe and giving Judas all the secrets of it. A lot of it in, in, in that little book, The Gospel of Judas, a lot of it is bizarre interaction and mythology, including saying that Jesus would often show up in his disciples' midst looking like a little child and speaking to them as a child. It's Jesus teaching about these self-generating spirits that just showed up and weren't created necessarily by God, and that one of those spirits is the one who then, pretty corrupt individual, was the creator of the cosmos and the creator then of all that we see that's playing out before us, even Adam and Eve, made by this entity that emerged from God but wasn't created from him. And then there's all of these missing lines throughout it because the document had fallen apart so much and decomposed so much over that period of time. There's only one copy of this ancient document, just one, this one, that's terrible in terrible shape. It proves to us that this was not massively copied and distributed by the early church like the four Gospels that you have that have hundreds of ancient copies of them. But one of the things it also does is it portrays the disciples as a really messy group, even more messy than our Gospels present them. In fact, it shows Jesus mocking their prayers and then them being sensitive and him mimicking them and kind of poking fun at them, things that seem very, very out of character. And then he finally looks at the disciples and says, who among you is perfect and can stand before me? And all of them answer, oh, I am. And then he said, well, then stand before me. And none of them did except for Judas. And that's when Jesus then speaks to Judas, addressing him publicly, and affirms him. You see, the, this, this gospel according to Judas paints a totally different portrait than the other four gospels do, where Jesus in that moment looks at him, and I quote, he says to him, you will be cursed by other generations, and you will come, though, to rule over them. In the last days, they will curse your ascent to the holy generation. 
Jesus is saying publicly, you get it, Judas. You'll be rewarded for it. You one day will rule over the rest of these guys. And then in this climactic moment towards the end of the gospel, Judas sees this vision of the glory of God before him, and he steps into it, and the voice of God begins to speak to him. And it says, Judas lifted up his eyes and saw the luminous cloud, and he entered inside. And those standing on the ground heard a voice coming from the cloud saying, and then there's a big hole in the manuscript. (laughs) And then when the paper comes back together, great generation, hole in the manuscript. And then an estimated five lines are missing, and that's how it all comes to a close. It actually finishes with Judas going off to do whatever he had heard the instruction from that glory cloud, seemingly God instructing him, you need to betray my son. Judas goes and carries that thing out. You see, that's the shocker according to this ancient document that supposedly he's trying to rewrite the story of the betrayal of Jesus. It's telling you that Judas didn't betray Jesus at all. Instead, Jesus is putting him up to this. He's the most trusted of all of his disciples, and he had to hand him over to be killed. And Judas' reward, Jesus spells out plainly, you're going to rule over the rest of them. He's depicted then as the story's hero. Unfortunately, the theory has more holes in it than the manuscript does, because when you think about it, how could someone really believe that this is true and then watch Judas go out and hang himself because he's so full of remorse and regret for what he did? And and why would I think that this is true when... When would Judas have even had time to write this out or to go and find someone to tell him the insider information before he took his own life? Or how? How would I trust this over gospel accounts that were written by first-hand eyewitnesses? And this is not written until several generations after Jesus had lived. And why, oh why, oh why, would Jesus make the comment he made in verse 21, where he said, it's better for that man if he had never been born than to have been born and done this. You see, it's true of all of human history, within all of God's creation, God is undoubtedly, he's responsible for the fact of free will, but not for the act of free will. God has given us free will. No one would protest that. We like free will, but what we choose to do with it, we cannot hold God responsible for. And in this moment, Judas betrays Jesus. And yes, God will use that to bring about the redemption of humanity, but Judas remains responsible for his dark and sinister act. Now, why do I tell you all of this? Because all of us still find this so shocking that National Geographic is still running specials in the last handful of years every year at this time to try to explain away the thing that seems unthinkable, that one of Jesus' closest of friends could actually betray him. That Jesus, who is perfect and treated everyone perfectly, could have someone so close to him, the recipient of that kind of love and care, turn on him in a moment's notice. Sell him out for a small amount of money. It's shocking and disappointing. And we have to understand the weight of this. There's betrayal here. And if you've suffered through betrayal, you know the weight of it. We're talking about an extremely painful experience for Jesus. That's what betrayal is, often because you're hurt by someone that you trusted enough to be vulnerable with. And for many of us, that's been our story. We've had moments like this where we chose to trust someone and then they violate and exploit that trust and leave us deeply wounded. Some of you, you've tasted the sting that Jesus is feeling in this moment where he's rejected and betrayed, sold out by a friend. If that's you, hear and know that the story tells you that God understands what you feel. He understands your pain in your moments of betrayal. In fact, Scripture tells us the first betrayal took place before creation of this earth seemingly even began, where there's a betrayal that takes place in the heavenly realm where an angel turns against God and rebels, 
the first betrayal. And then that second betrayal happens when that angel who's fallen, that we refer to as Lucifer or the Satan, the liar, the deceiver, as he comes here and then humanity turns on God again and betrays, betrays him. But in contrast to the way that many of us would want to respond to, to that kind of hurt and that kind of uh, relational betrayal, He didn't just walk away and give up on his relationship with creation. In contrast to what we'd expect God to do, out of the pain of betrayal, God became determined to bring about redemption. Rather than pulling back and hurt, God leaned in further. And now we find another betrayal, humanity again turning on Jesus. This is why it's so shocking for us to process, is because Jesus was perfect and loved people perfectly, even Judas. In fact, in John's Gospel, chapter 13, verse 21, it says, after saying this, Jesus was visibly, this is what they're seeing, he was deeply troubled, John wrote. And then he declared, I can guarantee this truth, one of you is going to betray me. This was not a mechanical, emotionless moment in the room. Jesus was grieved and deeply moved by the looming betrayal of a dear friend because it was deeply hurtful that a friend would do this to him because he deeply loved Judas and he knew even, I think, the end of the story, even for Judas. And so when Jesus says it would have been better for that man to have never been born, I don't picture his jaw locked tight and his teeth clenched and frustration and bitterness or anger in his voice. I picture in here compassion, a heart that's melting, a face that's displaying his sadness with the choice that Judas, his friend, is making. As John said, he was deeply troubled in the moment that he mentioned, it's all going to go south, guys. This is where it changes. Although a shock to us, the the betrayal of Judas is not a surprise to God. God didn't make him do this. He did, however, know that he would do it. And God is amazingly capable of using even a tragic betrayal like this to bring about redemption. Professor Google defines redemption as the action of regaining or gaining possession of something in exchange for payment. This is what Jesus is going to do. He's going to regain possession of something that's dear and precious to him, all of creation, through an exchange of payment. It's so very important that you recognize God's desire for redemption is the driving force that propels him towards a cross, not the betrayal of a friend. It's Jesus' desire for redemption and restoration, his heart of love that drove him towards a cross. In Luke 22, in fact, Jesus said it this way in verse 15. He says, I've earnestly or fervently desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. He's longing for this moment because there's two shocks that take place in the moment. One is the shock that one will betray him. The other is the shock of how he will insert himself into this ceremony that they will celebrate, this feast that they will have. And he'll point out that I am the substance that this was merely a shadow of all along. He longed to be in this moment, to make clear to every person who is present and every future follower of Jesus who'd read this story, to make clear to us what Jesus was actually doing and accomplishing in coming to the earth. Why was he so intent on and so excited about, so passionate, fervently desiring to sit with his friends and eat this meal was because the the Passover was the celebration of the substitutionary lamb that was provided for the people 
that would allow the judgment of God to pass over them, that would provide for the deliverance of God's people, that would institute a new covenant relationship. You see, this, if this was a meal that Jesus passionately desired to sit and to eat and experience with his disciples, then it's a meal quickly that we'll look at and walk through and then finish by celebrating communion. What Jesus, what Jesus takes of this feast and says, for all of my followers, at least this aspect, do often in remembrance of me. And so let's talk about this feast a bit. Uh, both in the first century and still to this day, the Passover celebration included a feast. And maybe you've been, how many of you have been to a Passover feast or Seder? In fact, some of our home groups, I think, this last week even did this together, which is super cool. Well, it's great to see that several of you have been a part of this. Thank you, Siri, for finding that on the web. She's also been to one. Uh, the meal was modeled after the final meal that the Jews had in Egypt while that 10th plague was playing out, this meal is modeled after in such a way that would allow you to re-enter the tension of that moment. In fact, it's called a Passover Seder. When you uh, sit together to remember this and to partake of this meal together, a Seder means the procedure or the order. It's, it's the reminder of the order of events, the things that took place at Passover. The dinner itself tells the story, the dinner that Jesus and his disciples will sit and partake of today as this text will tell us. You see, Passover is one of the seven feasts from the Old Testament that God set out and said, every year you should remember these things. It's one of the three that they were told, and each year you should travel back to Jerusalem to remember it together. It's reaching all the way back to the story of Exodus, where God sends 10 plagues, that final one, being that the angel of death would come throughout the land, and in every home you'd either find a child who had lost its life, or a lamb that had been slain, where God would provide a way of escape from judgment and justice if only they would trust God and take him at his word and sacrifice a lamb and apply, appropriate, the blood of that sacrifice over the doorposts of their house. If they did that, the judgment of God passed over the house. Hence, it's forever been known as Passover. This was a commemorative feast in that it looked back in commemoration of what God had done, but it was also a feast that was always celebrated in anticipation, looking forward to a future day when God would ultimately deliver his people from all of the world's brokenness. Please hear me say that. It didn't just look back in commemoration. It celebrated looking forward in anticipation. And all four Gospels record this story. John's Gospel gives the most details of what happens and seems to paint the clearest picture for us to see of the meal that Jesus had with he and his disciples who sat around a table with him on that night. John's Gospel leaves us with some imagery that leaves us picturing the disciples all seated on the floor around the table. We know from ancient customs that you would typically lean on your left hand and eat with your right hand because your left hand would be leaned on rather than eaten with for many different reasons. And so you'd lean this direction. John's gospel tells us that John is sitting next to Jesus, lounging and leaning this direction towards Jesus. He even uses beautiful uh, uh, terminology to explain that, saying that his head would rest on the, on the chest of Jesus, that he felt so close and intimate and cared for by Jesus. But he's leaning this way, and you'd, you'd lounge, if you've ever had a meal like this in some other place, I have before, after a while of just sitting there to lean on people, and you just kind of lean all the way around in a circle on this oval table. It's kind of nice and does provide a rest. But John's gospel paints a picture, and most scholars agree, that Judas is seated beside Jesus. 
and that as Jesus is leaning on his left, it's no accident that Jesus will rest his head in the hands of Judas. Quite literally, Jesus lounged hearing Judas' heartbeat out of his chest when he mentioned, someone at this table will betray me. While Judas sat holding the head of Jesus in his own hands, deciding what he would do with him. The seat to the left of the host was the seat of honor, because the host would be willing to entrust himself leaning on that individual. Seemingly, Jesus has placed Judas in that place as as a gracious expression of love and grace, and maybe even one final appeal to Judas. See, the Passover celebration, the Seder meal, it's the oldest and longest standing religious celebration or observance in the world today. It reaches back, some traditions, all the way back 3,200 plus years with every detail of this meal being symbolic and deeply picturesque. The singing, the praying, the eating, the drinking, all of it is retelling the story of redemption from oppression through a substitutionary sacrifice. That's what the whole story is all about. This is the annual meal that commemorated the defining moment in Israel's history. And Jesus will sit with his friends here. You see, just as the original Passover and Exodus began with people removing leaven from their homes, this is what people still do today, where you would remove it from your home because it's a picture of influence that can infiltrate a loaf and, and will permeate through a loaf. It's a picture and a type of sin in the Old Testament. And you'd remove that from your house, and then the leader of the home or of that group of people, it's Jesus in that moment, would be appointed to preside over the meal. They would be given the responsibility of talking those who sit at the table with them through the meal and explaining what each aspect of the meal represents and reminds them of what God had placed there as reminders of God's care and provision of a substitutionary sacrifice. Typically, at this point in time, as people would be gathered there in for Jesus in an upper room together, everyone would wash their hands and in the first century, wash their feet also so that you could begin the meal. But this was the job that was assigned to the lowest individual in the room, and no one in Jesus' group of buddies was willing to take that position. John's gospel tells us Jesus himself would stand. Remember, Mark's gospel told us the Son of Man, he didn't come to be served, Jesus said, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. It was another example of how Jesus would serve them. He would put a a robe, a towel around him. He would go and wash his disciples' feet, stooping down just as he had done from heaven to come to earth in the first place. Yet again, he bends his knees still a little lower in order to wash and cleanse them, and then the meal would begin. The meal's marked by Several different things, but if you've ever been to one, even today, you'll probably sit around a table and notice that there's an empty chair at the table. The empty chair is left there for Elijah, an empty seat there, believing that what the prophets had foretold is that one day Elijah would come back and he would be the forerunner before Messiah would arrive. Now, you remember that John the Baptist, Jesus said, was the fulfillment of that promise. If you've been to one, you've probably tasted gefilte fish. It tastes worse than it looks. I'm not trying to offend anybody. And then they'll put maybe some chopped liver on a table. I tried the gefilte fish, decided to pass on the chopped liver because of that. Sticking with the theme of nasty textures, you've ever had matzo ball soup? It's like matzo except in a ball and sitting in warm water till it gets soggy. Um, I don't know why anyone ever looked at matzo and was like, this is so good, let's make soup out of it. 
I don't want to offend anybody. I have a friend, his wife's an incredible cook, and he told me the best thing she makes is matzo ball soup. And I was like, don't tell people that. <laughs> They're going to get the wrong idea. <laughs> Other foods consumed throughout the gathering. These, these are all symbols, not hors d'oeuvres. These items all tell a story of the first Passover. You'd have unleavened bread. They refer to it as the bread of affliction. It's, it's pierced and striped. There's no leaven. It, remember a picture of influence of sin that would permeate and, and, and go throughout the whole of it. No, it doesn't have any of that, but it would be broken, and that's what would be used as a utensil. It's, it's parsley that would be dipped in salt water to remind them of the tears that they had shed while in slavery in Egypt. It's harosheth. It's apples and nuts and honey and cinnamon that are mixed together that are supposed to be a visual representation of the bricks and mortar that they were forced into slave labor to build, but the sweetness of it was the reminder that God still would be faithful and bring about deliverance. It's the horseradish and bitter herbs, the experience of remembering the pain of waiting for a deliverer. Remember, Jesus says, the one that I dip the sop with, the one that I dip and share with, many scholars think that that's what Jesus was dipping that bread in before he handed it to Judas, was these bitter herbs that were a reminder of the pain of longing for the one who would deliver them. But Judas looked at Jesus and didn't see a deliverer. He saw a failure because Jesus didn't meet his expectations. There'd be a shank bone of a lamb that would be resting on a table in most gatherings, something that's actually not mentioned in Jesus' Passover gathering, though. But it was a reminder of that final plague, the killing of a lamb and its blood covering you. But the meal would commence as the leader of the host, the host of the home would rise and lift the first of four cups and pronounce a blessing. It's taken directly, and we can believe that this is where Jesus even quoted from, Exodus chapter 6, beginning in verse 6. There's four statements that God makes there as a promise. Four I will statements. In that first cup, as they would lift it, quoting from Exodus 6, I'll read the little passage to you. Therefore say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, that's one promise. I will rescue you from their bondage, that's the second. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great judgments, that's the third. And I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brings you out from, the, out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. There's four cups during the feast, and the first one would be lifted as the cup of sanctification. And then there's a pouring of a second cup where the host would again stand, and, and it was called the cup of plagues, where it's a promise that I will rescue you, but it's a reminder to everybody who sits there of the 10 plagues involved in that rescue. They'd remember the plagues, and in and, and kind of an ominous fashion, often what they do is they dip their finger in that cup 10 times, and each time they then shake the droplets off their finger onto their plate, calling out each of those 10 plagues. There's blood and frogs, and lice, and flies, and disease, and boils. There's hail, and locusts, and darkness. There's death. They're remembering what a brutal time it was. This is an unnerving moment. But in the middle of the meal, between these four cups, at some point in time, the host would have, would have pulled out an ehad. It's a bag, a satchel. Ehad means one. You might remember the great Shema of God from the Old Testament. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God. 
He's one, and yet we know, although he's one, he's one person, three distinct entities, a part of that, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. The echad, it means the one, or oneness and unity. The one, the two become one flesh, your Bible says. It's the only other picture that's given of that word, not just the nature of a triune God, but also given of what happens between a man and a woman when they become one flesh, when they unite themselves under a covenantal agreement that there's a third entity that now resides there. Very interesting, that picture. But the bag is called the one. It has three compartments inside. They'd reach into that center compartment. They'd take one of these pieces of unleavened bread. Remember, it's been pierced, striped, and now it will be broken in half. Half of it is wrapped in a white linen cloth. It's then hidden away by the host of the home. Later in the meal, the youngest person, with faith like a child, will go looking for the one that had been wrapped in a white cloth, And when they take what was broken, pierced, and striped and bring it back, people would celebrate and cheer, and a ransom price was paid by the host of the home to purchase that back, and then it would be broken to be used to eat the dessert at the end of the meal. Because of that, it's called afikomen. It's a Greek word that many scholars believe means, uh, well, it's, it's a rough translation basically to imply dessert, but what it would more specifically or literally be translated is that which comes after. We're longing for that which comes after. The one pierced, striped, broken, wrapped in a cloth, retrieved with faith like a child, brought forth. The Mishnah, these ancient rabbinic writings, they talk about how it could be used, the afikomen could be used as a substitute for a sacrificial lamb if someone couldn't afford a lamb, that that was the centerpiece that was a picture of the lamb. It's the Talmud that explains and forbids people from eating anything else after afikomen because they wanted you to leave with the taste of that in your mouth because that is the centerpiece of it all. It's for many Jews throughout the ages that would teach that that middle matzah represents a broken bridge between the first compartment and the final one, between a holy God, the heavenly realm, and the broken world we live in. It's a broken bridge we're longing for, and someday, somehow, that will be mended and brought back together, but we just don't know how. And Jesus took it, he broke it, and said, this is my body broken for you. A tradition, almost 1,500 years old, that Jesus rewrote the script for, it was provocative and shocking for everyone at the table, claiming that he was the bread of affliction that would be pierced and striped and broken for them, the ehad, one and yet three, the middle piece pulled out. You see the imagery saying, this is my body that will be broken for you. There's then a third cup that would have been poured. And again, remember those three statements in Exodus chapter 6, verse 6. I'll bring you out. I'll rescue you. I will redeem you is the third statement that would be read over this cup. I'll redeem you with an outstretched arm and great judgment. It's called the cup of redemption. In celebration of God sending a deliverer who delivered them from bondage. Many scholars believe this is the cup that Jesus would lift and he said, This is the blood of the new covenant which I shed for you. He's sharing the purpose of his death. The purpose of his death is restoration of his people. And he's showing the person that it all pointed to all along for nearly 1,500 years. This was pointing to a person. He'd take an inanimate object, a cup, and make it deeply personal. Because the cup represented the blood of a substitutionary sacrificial lamb that would redeem them. Jesus says, that's who I am. And this is what I'm going to do for you. 
And Jesus didn't author this thought. It's John the Baptist seeing him coming, saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's Isaiah 53, and it should pop up on the screen for you. The prophet Isaiah, beginning in Isaiah 53, verse 4, says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. The cup of redemption. This is my blood shed for you. There was the pouring of a fourth cup towards the end of the feast where it would take it from that fourth statement. Remember Exodus chapter six, now in verse seven, the fourth statement is a promise. I will take you as my people and I will be your God. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And as Jesus read that, He lifted what's known as the cup of praise or the cup of betrothal. That cup, many believe, is when Jesus says, but this cup I will not drink again until the coming of my kingdom. I will drink it together with you in the future because what this points to is a promise. In fact, linguistically and culturally, what Jesus is using there is he's speaking in in terms of an oath. He's making a promise I will not drink of this until we're there, but the wording is expressing a promise that I will faithfully take you there. And we will be together and we will drink of this cup together. It's something that the Bible calls the marriage supper of the Lamb, where we are united with God in perfection, with no more sin, sickness, suffering, and death. And we lift the cup of praise because we praise him that worthy, worthy, worthy is the Lamb who was and is and is to come the lamb who was slain and who's by being slain purchased all of this for us, for all of eternity. Now, if I've lost you, come back for a second because there's two unbelievable things that are happening here that are shocking. The first is that Jesus reveals that someone's going to betray him, but the second that he does here is that he reveals that these things have ultimately always pointed to him. It was shocking that Jesus will change the script around the table. That's why all of these guys are writing this out in each of their Gospels, because by inserting himself into the Passover feast, he's making it clear that this was all, always all about him. That this was all, always all about Jesus. That the Passover was simply a shadow cast by the substance that finally arrived and stood before them as the Lord of the host. It was the foreshadow of Jesus' arrival, and it explained Jesus' purpose in arriving. Do you see that there's a shadow and a substance that's present in this moment, in this feast? I mean, think about it this way. Why would the appropriation of blood on doorposts protect people from the justice and judgment of God? It would protect them because it all always was a picture, according to Jesus, of our appropriating by faith his substitutionary sacrifice for us. Do you see the shadow and the substance at the table with them? 
for Jesus. To personalize the Passover feast, he's saying that this has always been pointing to me. Using the Passover to express a new teaching and give new understanding and using the Passover to even institute a new custom of communion, of the Lord's Supper, or coming to the Lord's table to partake of communion. If he's doing that, there's four quick things, really quick, and I do promise, that we'll land the plane with. What does this really teach us if Jesus is doing this around the table with his friends? Well, the first is that it reveals the affliction of Jesus as the eternal plan of God for redemption. It reveals the affliction of Jesus with something that God had predetermined from eternity past as the plan of God to bring about redemption. It's showing you that this was pre-planned. It's been staged. This is not a new thing or some new idea that Jesus has some light bulb moment around a table. The disciples and millions of Jews over a period of over or nearly 1,500 years had celebrated this feast. What they failed to see until this moment was that it was always pointing ahead to this moment where Jesus would be in their midst and say, I am this lamb whose blood will be shed. My substitute will provide a way for judgment to pass over humanity. On the very weekend of Passover, on the very hour of sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, Jesus would be sacrificed as our substitute according to the eternal plan of God. I mean, even when we read this story, you might have choked on some of the details where Jesus tells the guy, just go into the city. You're going to find a guy, water pot on his head, follow him, tell him I need the room. Some of you couldn't even get past that because you're thinking, how in the world did Jesus either kind of have the foreknowledge to know that or pre-plan all of that? Also, you might know that like in history, typically men aren't carrying water jars on their head. Typically, it was a woman's job in the culture. And jars on the head were kind of so last year because they had moved on by this time in history to where they're wearing satchels that are carrying water beside them. This would have been a weird scene in the midst of there's hundreds of thousands, maybe even over a million people that are in the city of Jerusalem and they're looking around like, how in the world are we supposed to find? Oh, that's weird. Why has he got a water jug on his head? And then they go and ask him, and the guy's like, great, I've got an upper room, come and use it. You might think it's so crazy that how in the world would Jesus have orchestrated that, even that? But think about it. If you have a God who pre-planned the redemption of the world from the moment that it was conceived because he could see the rebellion that would ensue and would see the looming shadow of the cross on a distant horizon in order to redeem and restore creation and yet embrace it, And sit at a table with his friends and say, what this has pointed to for over a thousand years, pointed to the day that you're seeing today and what you'll see go down this weekend, then you have a God who can not only provide for a meal plan for his guys to have a quiet place to sit together, but it speaks some comfort to my heart to tell me he can provide the meal for my table too. It does. It speaks some comfort to me that he can provide for my family too. That we have a God who's, who's powerful enough, wise enough, capable enough. He's in control enough to orchestrate things in my life, to care for me, my family, and my future together. And please hear me say this. This story here is an affectionate voice of a father that's saying, I see and have a plan. I don't have the limitations that you come up against. I see and know you've got to trust me. And the worst that can happen to you, I've taken the sting out of. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? Jesus has rescued us. He's worthy of trust. In Revelation 13, it says that Jesus was the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world, that God knew what humanity, what you and I would do, and he knew what it would cost him, what he would have to do to bring us back 
And yet he moved forward with creation, knowing that it led him towards a rugged cross. He lived throughout eternity under the shadow of a cross that loomed over this feast, over this meal with Jesus and his friends. I mean, if I told you, I'm going to introduce you to someone that that you're going to love in the future, but then that person is going to use you, and then they're going to hurt you, and then they're going to betray you. And then over the years, they'll leave you. They're going to leave you penniless and broken because you gave everything to help them and rescue them. And in the end, they're going to die this terrible death because of it, because their choices were so self-destructive. There seemingly is no way out from under the pain that is their fate unless after all of that pain, all of that heartache, all that betrayal, all the loss, unless you jumped in and took their place and you suffered their end so they could go free. I mean, what would we do? We'd probably say, don't don't bother introducing me. (laughs) I've got other things to do. We'll skip that blind date. Or would you say, I'll do it. I'll be their ransom. God whom we seem to question at every turn, God whom we doubt as soon as things don't go our way, God whom we're so often angry at and frequently questioning his justice and care, God stood in a moment like that and said, I love you enough to enter that journey with you. Jesus is revealing that the affliction of Jesus, the suffering of Jesus, is God's eternal plan for redemption. This is pre-planned. But it also, it reveals very quickly the significance of Jesus. That's the second thing. Jesus putting himself in this story is revealing his own significance. That Passover was all about remembering God's deliverance of his people from Egypt. The bread reminded them of the affliction of their ancestors, that they're waiting for deliverance. And Jesus broke it and said, and this is my body that's given for you, that's going to deliver you. He's saying that his affliction would lead to it, pave a way for a new greater exodus for the future of humanity. Just as this meal had been the long-awaited observance of the night before, God would redeem his people from Egypt through the blood of an innocent lamb. Jesus would sit with his friends on the night before he would suffer and die in order for him to redeem all of creation from the corruption of sin And he'd do it through the gift of his life and the shedding of his blood. Jesus is saying that his death is the climactic moment that mankind was waiting for, that it's the central thing, the most significant, important thing that ever happened, freeing us from a far worse place in reality than slavery and Egypt, freeing us instead from Satan's tyranny of sin, sickness, suffering, and death for all of eternity. Jesus, by inserting himself here, is revealing his own significance. But he's also revealing a third thing, and that's the meaning of his death. Jesus is revealing in this moment the meaning of his death. Jesus didn't just pick some random day and roll in, uh, what were those, if you've been in church a long time, the transparencies where they had the projector with the light and you could draw on them or write on them and they'd show up. You know what I'm talking about? Typically, if someone would do it, it would show up backwards. <laughs> You're like, this is not helpful. Jesus didn't, what's it called? Overhead projector, I should have known. There's got to be a technical term, right? (laughs) No. That's embarrassing. David, can you delete that later? Um, Yeah, so Jesus didn't roll into dinner with the guys and like, so guys, I'm going to put this whole thing together and I'm going to explain to you what I'm actually doing here. Jesus instead picked a night where all of it laid on a table in front of him. It reveals the meaning of Jesus' death. He chose the Passover Nearly 1,500 years beforehand, death visited every household, even the Israelites. No human was exempt from God's justice and judgment on that night unless a lamb's blood 
was used as a substitute for their own blood, for their own life. And at this meal, everything about the meal fits that tradition, with the exception of one missing element at the table. In all four Gospels, there's not a single mention of the meat, the main course of the meal, a lamb being present. And for many, they would say, well, there's no lamb present on the table because Jesus the lamb was seated there with them at the table. Something that the imagery of was not wasted on the disciples. Remember John the Baptist, his comments about beholding the lamb. In Isaiah 53, as we read, like a lamb who was led out to slaughter, the iniquity of us all would be laid upon him. You see, the truth is, though, some of us, we don't really like this much. We don't like the fact that God requires a sacrifice. And we wonder, I mean, if God's so loving, if that's who he is, then why not just forgive everyone and be done with it? Why instead look like some ancient, primitive, bloodthirsty God who's just demanding such an atrocity as the bloodshed of others? But please remind yourself for a moment that God's not just exclusively loving. He's also equally just, something that we all appreciate. We all want that. Everyone wants justice until justice is required of themselves. Remember, please, that Jesus did not have to die despite God's love separate or exclusive from God's love. No, Jesus had to suffer and die because of God's love. In a beautiful book called Jesus is King, the author, he writes that it had to be this way because all life-changing love is substitutionary sacrifice. He points out, you'll never hurt a hurting person. I'm sorry, you'll never hurt. You'll never love a hurting person. You'll never love a broken person. You'll never love a wounded or guilty person. You'll never love a person who's in trouble except through substitutionary sacrifice. If you love someone whose life is completely together, who has no major needs, someone who is nice and happy all of the time, then loving them costs you nothing And congratulations, you found like one of four people on planet Earth who are easy to love, who it doesn't cost you anything, and please let the rest of us know where we can find them. But if you live in the real world, and if you try to love someone that's hurting, or who has needs, or who is broken, or emotionally wounded, or in trouble, loving them will always cost you something. Because you can't love them and bring them up without you going down to them in some way. You see, there's always a transfer that takes place, isn't there? Some of their trouble and their hurt, their wounds transfers to you. It always is down to them or you. Do I shield myself from this, protect myself, or if I love them, do I allow myself to feel some of this with them? Think of it in terms of a cheesy movie where there's this young, uh, cute girl who's running across the street and a car slams on its brakes and she ends up on the hood of the car screaming for help. And all of a sudden, the people in the car have a decision to make. Damsel in distress, do we rescue her and run the risk of a guy with a chainsaw coming around the corner, or do we just put it in reverse and say, we're sorry, we don't know Ablinglace, and then take off and leave her to be? Because we realize if we stop and rescue the person who's in dire straits, well, then we realize that we're risking taking on her, assuming her danger to ourselves. We enter into her life, and it's if we're going to love her, it's through substitutionary sacrifice. If I don't stop, then I'm not, I'm not exchanging any of my safety or security for her well-being. But if I stop, that's exactly what I'm doing. On a much smaller, less dangerous scale, it's when you engage with an emotionally wounded person. 
who's needy and wiped out, whose heart is broken, whose life is just, is just shattered and splintered. We can be tempted to run the other direction when we see them coming because we know if I invite that person into my life and if I develop a relationship with them, it's going to invite their hurt and their disappointment, their angst into my life, and it's going to cost me something. It's going to cost me some time. It's going to cost me a lot of listening, and it's going to cost me being emotionally drained to be with them. But the only way that an emotionally wounded and needy person will ever be filled up and loved and experience healing is when you allow yourself to be drained. When your joy gets to be transferred to them as their sorrow is transferred a bit of it to you. For them to be filled up, you're going to have to be emptied out. For, for some of their hurt to be felt and hit by you, that, that means that your peace and, and your fullness and your joy can then, as it hits you, can splash back their direction. The idea is that it's them or you. It's always as simple as that. You have to love them in a self-sacrificial, substitutionary, sacrificial way. Otherwise, those people drown in their own sorrow. Hit rewind and think of a high school campus. It was you choosing, do I engage with a person? Although I'm respected or popular or, or I make the cool kids club, do I engage with that person who's lonely and isolated, who's maybe awkward and out of place, who hasn't found their place, who isn't valued or appreciated by others? If I love them, if I identify with them, if I sit with them, if I'm seen with them, then emerges Regina George and the Mean Girls, and they're here to compare me to other people and say, what are you doing with them with those kinds of people? Because some of their nerdiness is splashed onto me. Some of their seclusion and awkwardness all of a sudden is associated with me. All of a sudden, their isolation begins to be felt by me. Do you understand? To self-sacrificially love someone is what we have to do if we're going to love and care for anyone on any sort of a deep level at all. It's precisely what Jesus had to do. If he was going to truly love us, he had to enter into the destruction of creation, and he had to take it on his shoulders, not just living under the shadow of a cross, but embracing it himself. It's exactly what Jesus has done for us. He became our substitutionary sacrifice. It had to be this way because all life-changing love is through substitutionary sacrifice. It's what Jesus did. Jesus putting himself in this story, putting himself into this feast, inserting himself into it, saying this was always about me. It reveals the affliction of Jesus as being God's eternal plan of redemption. It reveals the significance of Jesus. It reveals the meaning of Jesus' death, that he did this out of love for us. But it also reveals the great power of this custom. And this is the last thing, that Jesus took this ancient custom that commemorated God's deliverance from one, uh, deliverance of one small percentage of humanity from one uh, definitive time in human history, he takes that one moment and Jesus personalized it and making it something that would commemorate his grand deliverance of all of humanity for all of eternity. So that when we remember these things, so that when we gather around the Lord's table, so that when we partake of communion, we commemorate Jesus and all that he's accomplished for us, his substitutionary sacrifice. When we take the bread and the cup, we're meant to remember these transforming truths. We're, we're meant to remember our dependency. Every time we lift the cup, we are expressing dependency upon Jesus and his sacrifice in our place. 
We dare not make the mistake of merely seeing Jesus any more than someone should make the mistake of just sitting at a dinner table without partaking of the food on the table. Jesus said, take this in remembrance of me. We must take him at his word. We must embrace him for ourselves. Taking the bread and the cup is a way of speaking to God, saying, I believe and I deeply need you, Jesus. It expresses dependency. Remember, in this moment, Jesus will say, I will not drink this again. It's something referred to as a blood oath. You're promising to neither eat nor drink until your vow is accomplished. Essentially, you're saying, I'm going to do this or die even if it kills me. It was a common practice in the ancient world, but was always done by the lower position, the servant to a promise to his master, made by the inferior to their superior. But Jesus here, as God and masters, as master, makes a blood covenant with his followers and friends, saying, I'm unconditionally committed to accomplish everything I'm telling you, but Jesus left no if in the equation. No, even if it kills me because his promise would be fulfilled in just that, and he knew it. Whenever we partake of communion, we are making a statement of dependency that he is my lamb and that I am indebted because of my sin, and he is the one who is deserving then of my trust. It's a statement of dependency. It's a, it's a statement, and there's power in this, of family. Every time we lift the cup, the Passover meal, it was celebrated by family. You would travel home to be with family, and then with your family, you'd travel to the holy city of Jerusalem to celebrate the feast together. It wasn't just a part of the man-made tradition. This was a part of God's instruction to his people that you celebrate this with family, the Passover. And yet what Jesus does is peculiar then because he pulls his disciples away from their families to sit at a Passover meal, a table that's resided over rather than their earthly fathers by him, it's implicating very simply and very clearly that Jesus was instituting and beginning something here, and it was a new family. And that every time we lift the cup, that that's a part of what we're reminded of, is that we belong in his family. Whenever you lift the cup and eat the bread, you, you should hear these words echo in your heart that I belong. I'm wanted, that I'm loved, and that I am accepted as a part of a family. This powerful thing that Jesus gave us reminds us of, yes, our dependency and his goodness. It reminds us of the family that's such a gift that we're a part of with him as the head of this household. But it also always leaves us with a sense of expectancy. In verse 25 again, he says, I will not drink again until I drink it new in the kingdom. Partaking the cup always takes your eyes off the present, the pain, the disappointment of your life and causes us, it's meant to cause us to look ahead to where wrongs are made right. For everything that's messed up about this world will be made right once and for all. Remember, Passover is always a time of commemoration, remembering God's past deliverance and faithfulness, but it was always something we did in anticipation and communion, the Lord's table, is meant to be the same way, function in the same manner. That yes, it's in commemoration, but it's always, always, always in anticipation. You see, this is what we do. This is what we remember this week, is that Jesus sat with his friends and instituted something that reminds us of our dependency upon him and the gift of his faithfulness to us. That we declare our need for him and that he has met every need. 
and that we do it together, looking around a room, even this Friday, if you join us with other churches in the area, remembering and celebrating that we now are a part of his family. We belong together. And looking always with expectancy out towards the horizon of a new and better, of a brighter day in the future with him, because that is what he promised us. And so Jesus, as we then prepare our hearts before we go, to enter this scene and this meal around this table with you and your friends. Jesus, take these things and help them to reach beyond just our minds and into our hearts. A faithful God who's at work in our world, who's proven it again, who's demonstrated love in a way greater than we would have ever asked And that while we were still sinners, you died for us. You redeemed us with an outstretched arm and great judgments. Jesus, we could have never guessed that this is how it would play out, but this is what you've done. And so, Jesus, we, your people, we pause to remember you. Jesus, because you're worthy. Thank you again for listening to the Olive Branch Christian Fellowship Podcast. For more information about our church, go to olivebranchcf.org.